Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. All right. Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to this, uh, the 10th uh, legend in my legend series. Um, where I listen to people's stories, talk about their stories, and just enjoy hearing about their backgrounds, what shapes them, what drives them, what moves people forward. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce you to one of my uh, great um, peers and uh, people who are in my community, and it is Nina Cataldo. Uh, hi, Nina. Hello, thank you so much for having me on this with you, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. I'm absolutely delighted to have you here as well. Again, um, same as the previous podcast, it is absolutely roasting here. We're just in the, well, we're in the middle. I don't know what part of the middle of the COVID pandemic in 2020, depending on when you're watching this, uh, but it's, it's mid-August in Japan. And where are you right now, Nina? So I'm out in Niigata Prefecture, out in the mountains in Miyoko. Yeah. Um, it's a little, it's, it's hot, but it's a little less hot compared to Tokyo. So it's a nice place to be out in the, mm -hmm. in the woods. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm in Zushi and it is a super hot day today. And I just posted on my Instagram stories that I'm taking an aircon day today. And what that means is even though it's beautiful outside, even though I live five minutes bike ride from the beach, I'm staying inside aircon today. You have to give yourself those days, don't you? So, um, so let's let's get into it, Nina. I'm just going to give you a quick introduction, and then we'll get right into your story. Okay, so Nina is uh, was born and raised in Japan until she was eight, when she moved to the USA with her American dad and her Japanese mom. Um, she then um, went to school in the US, studied in the US where she studied, I think in Seattle, is that right? Studied in Correct. Seattle, uh, where she studied um, strategic communications and creative writing. Then when she graduated, she returned to Japan in her early twenties um, and went and worked for a publishing company where she helped to publish a couple of books. And then she got bitten by the bug of Peace Boat, which is a big boat that, uh, goes around the world spreading cultural joy and, and happiness and training people and teaching people on board. 
And um, so last year in September, she embarked on a voyage with Peace Boat, quit her job, um, took a massive, massive leap of faith. And that leap of faith led to many, many leaps of faith. Um, two years ago, she had started up uh, what she thought might be a small group called Hafu Ladies for um, exclusively for, for, for ladies who are of mixed Japanese and plus alpha uh, background. Three years ago, she was the membership director for FEW for Empowering Women, a professional networking organization for women here in Tokyo. And when she got back from Peace Boat, very shortly after that, COVID hit, but Hafu Ladies exploded. It's now a 900 member group. And that is what she's doing now as the founder uh, of that group and starting to take huge amounts of leadership in there and setting direction. She weathered the storm, uh, uh, well, she weathered the storm of the Black Lives Matter movement in a really gracious way in that group, I believe. I'm really proud of you for that, Nina. Um, and she's also a freelance travel uh, writer and communication specialist. And she specializes in building community and she specializes in vis visiting communities and communicating what's going on there. So it's, it's beyond just travel writing. There's something extra that, that, that Nina brings with her background there. Very exciting is that she's soon to register half the ladies or she's soon to register an LLC under which Hafu Ladies will, will sit, along with other projects I don't know about yet. I'm excited to hear about this maybe later in the call. And um, I think this is a good uh, point to start to ask you, is there anything that I forgot or left out from that, Nina, that I think you should know? I think that pretty much covers it. Um, maybe just my love and passion for cats that's a huge oh, part yeah. of my life but <laughs> but besides that in terms of professional life that basically covers it all yeah. lovely and it's also worth mentioning your bilingual english japanese as well right yes bilingual bicultural which i'll get into later but it's not not a trait that every single mixed race japanese person has exactly has. Yeah, yeah there's many there's many ways to lead a life there's many ways to be half it we're going to talk about the politics of that word later as well yeah, all right so let's get into it tell me about your mom and dad tell me about your childhood tell me about your background let's get into it let's see so yeah i was born in tokyo and um my parents they they got married within a year of meeting each other in the late 80s um, and started their own company together and um, and as an I'm an only child and I think I'm I'm always constantly constantly grateful um, for the life they've given me um, they made sure that when I was born like my dad only spoke to me in English my mom only in Japanese so really brought the bilingual aspect to the household and um, really kept up with it which I know is not easy for every parent every parent to do so um, I give a lot of credit to them for continuing that on um, throughout my life um, yeah and I uh, lived in Tokyo until I was eight surrounded by my parents my grandparents on both sides actually my American parents also lived in Japan um, and yeah so actually 
if we get into it, my, uh, my, yeah, my, let's get right into my it. dad, <laughs> my uh, dad is the oldest of five siblings, but four, uh, four, four of them ended up in Japan for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So only one of them didn't end up in Japan, but, um, my dad came over for, to, in order to learn Japanese as a language for business purposes. Um, the second oldest, my aunt coming over for exchange at Sophia University and then ended up transferring to live in Japan. Um, my, um, and then an, another uh, aunt coming over and living here, modeling and whatnot in the 80s. And then the youngest being uh, young moved over with his parents, my grandparents, because my grandpa was a journalist for Red, White, and Stripes, Red, White, Stripes, I think, uh, the military um, newspaper for the Navy. So yeah, so my American grandparents also lived here in the 90s. Um, and so I have cousins who are also half Japanese, like myself. And um, I did yeah, not so know it was really that. great. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's really great that the whole family was over here. And so um been very close with both my Japanese grandparents and my American grandparents and we all share the love for Japanese and Japanese culture uh and have a background here yeah fascinating Um, so do you so did you have quite close ties with the so do you understand I live quite close to a military base here so do you have quite close ties with the military bases here or do you feel some connection there I, I don't think so much because no. um, I think because my grandpa was a journalist, he was mm-hmm. like a civilian employee. Right. Um, so he didn't live on base. Uh, we did like we did go to like New Sanno Hotel growing up for Easter and Christmas and things, uh-huh. Thanksgiving. Um, but um, overall, they um, they they lived outside of base. They lived near Shibuya area. Um, so we'd visit them over there and then visit my grand Japanese grandparents in Otaku and like they're back there and and back and forth but I never really felt like it was like huge ties to the military we're not necessarily like um military centric or family gotcha. or family with that, that kind of ties but um mm-hmm. it's more of the my my grandpa's love for writing and journalism that brought him here and and oddly enough like what I ended up doing as well (laughs) yeah yeah well you know this these ancestral lines are really really interesting and I was saying this um on the previous podcast as well is um, I'm really interested in ancestral lines at the moment and the idea of seven generations back and seven generations forward and that's who we do our work for so it's not only for ourselves which definitely should be for ourselves first and then the people around us in our communities but we're also thinking about our ancestors back and our ancestors forward. So this is absolutely fascinating. And your dad lived in a European country for some time, is that right? Yeah, so he grew up in Frankfurt, Germany, because Mm -hmm. again, uh, for military purposes, my grandpa was uh, based in in Frankfurt. So Mm -hmm. yeah, my dad grew up um, from the age of five until 19, uh, living in Germany, going to international school there. Uh, and still very, very close with this international school friends the way I am with my international school friends from Japan. So again, right, family ties, it's, it's all very similar. <laughs> um, how did your mom and dad meet? So my mom was working at an art gallery in Ginza. 
and mm -hmm. um, both my grandmas on both sides are professional artists. Um, my Japanese grandma being an oil painter and my American grandma being a sculptor and watercolor artist. Um, <laughs> and so because of that, um, and my dad has always had love for art as well. He actually started off college as a potter, pottery major, and then switched over to business. <laughs> but but uh, so he he walked, what I, from what I hear, he walked into this art gallery one day in Ginza to check out art, and my mom was working there. And um, they ended up keeping in touch and kind of doing like a language exchange once a week at a nearby and um, my dad would call her to talk and partially I think to practice his Japanese but partially for whatever other reasons and yeah and then they were married a year later and the funny story with that they say it was a misunderstanding and I don't know if they'll kill me for saying this but, but uh, my dad was like let's move in together and my mom being traditional Japanese was like moving in together must mean he's proposing and so then like they started getting ready to get married and then they were <laughs> so and, and they're still together after 30 yeah. some years so it's fantastic so lovely. <laughs> so lovely um and so you're an only child How, what kind of influence do you think that's had on you as a young child it was a part of me that was filled with complexity, I think. Um, I think I saw so many other kids have siblings and I was so jealous of that. And I remember like asking parents for a sibling when I was little, um, but my dad was very firm in knowing he wanted only one child. And um, I think it just worked out with my mom in that way. And um, you know, this is, this is their biggest investment in life is me. So, <laughs> so I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that they put all their eggs in, a, in one basket being me um, and really giving me the best life I can have. Um, any kind of lessons I wanted to take, they were up for it. Um, and um, I used to joke, I think around when I was in college that I used to tell my mom like, oh, I'm not really good at anything because you guys let me try everything. And I didn't stick with anything, <laughs> which is a silly thing to say now because I think it has helped me um, be well-adversed in all types of, uh, you know, doing all types of things in life, uh, being able to uh, adapt to any kind of environment. Um, so everything from ballet lessons to swimming, piano, painting, dance, um, sports yeah. yeah everything so um i'm really lucky that they were so willing to do that and even when times were tough for the family that they they looked out for my best interest um yeah. and try to pr protect me from uh from everything and give me the best life i can and and, and even now like i'm i'm on my own but i know that they're always one call one phone call away and they're always there supporting me through everything so very grateful for that yeah they're they're yeah what a what a what a pair <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you've met my dad <laughs> i have met your dad yeah i had a lovely lovely uh, meeting with him last year with his mates <laughs> yeah party. party animals <laughs> yeah amazing yeah they were the coolest people there <laughs> yeah um 
with your grandparents, like your grandmas uh, and their artistic bent, do you think that any of that has come into you in some way? I think so. Um, I grew up doing art all the time. Um, my grandma in Japan used to run an art class out of her house with my aunt. So I used to go to their weekly painting classes as a little kid. And um, as a teenager, when we stopped coming back to Japan every summer, um, I instead would be sent over or take, or I would go over to my grandma's place in Pennsylvania where my, my American grandparents moved to. And she had a beautiful patio, which was her art studio. So I would spend like two, three weeks every summer painting with her there or like taking local art classes. So those influences really stayed with me. And as a high schooler, I took um, advanced placement art. So I was always in the art studio. It was a really therapeutic thing for me when I was going through typical teenage angst stuff. <laughs> and um, I think even though I don't do too much hands-on type art nowadays, it's still really kept with my love for art and um, artistic and creative side of problem solving or looking at different projects, I think. Mm. Ah, so the creative side when you're looking at different projects, because creativity comes in all kinds of different ways. I think people can be artistic in, for example, you have great sense of style. And when you had your party last year, it was extremely creatively done. It was very um, ceremonial almost, you know, it was like, like you had a vision <laughs> for it. And I, I, you know, I, I really love that kind of sense of style and pageantry or that sense of style and creativity that you bring to whatever you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ingrained in me and I love thinking out of the box and coming up with uh, how to be, you know, creative and unique and memorable, uh, whether it's for a client or for my own party or whatever. So yeah, yeah. it really stays with me. Yeah. Yeah, love that. Um, really love that. Okay, so let's move on. So let's let's be, so Nina is born. You you're here for eight years. What what was the first eight years like in Tokyo? Um, I we we lived in a we lived a very international lifestyle. I think because I went to international school. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I really. Again, I had my American family and my Japanese family here. So really getting the best of both worlds in that sense, being surrounded by other families who are very international um, and at the same time being protected by my parents in that sense. So um, I, and I was really shy. I was actually really, really, really shy and really much like a, a mama's girl, um, always like hiding behind her. Um, yeah, and it was it was a pretty cushy, nice lifestyle, I think. Um, my parents had their own company, but they worked out of the house. Uh, so I was lucky that I always saw my dad and my mom around. And yeah, and um, at the age of eight, they decided that we were gonna move to the United States. And I don't remember this, but apparently I locked myself in my room for a whole day because I was very upset about it. <laughs> um, and I think, um, yeah, we, we moved to the States in the summer before my second grade, uh, second year primary school started. 
um, and went to um, a public school, which was a very different experience from the experience I had in the international community in Japan, in Tokyo. Uh, yeah. Um, Say more about that. Yeah, I, I think, so it was interesting. It was a public school, but it had a Japanese immersion program. So that's why I went there the first year, but as we moved too late, I couldn't get into the, the special immersion program side. So I was in the, the regular school side, which was all, still a really great experience. Um, had a fantastic teacher um, who actually, we had um, pet rats in the class and I used to write stories about their adventures. And it's really funny looking back now because up until then, up until the age of eight, my parents were very much honing towards the side of me being a visual artist because of what my grandmas, grandmas did. But um, then I started writing when we moved here. And it was the first time, you know, I had my own Mac computer, the colorful one, mm -hmm. and could like type up stories. Uh, and I would take it, take the stories to my teacher and then she would give me time to read them to the class. And she was the first one who told my parents, Nina has a skill for writing. Um, you should really, you know, keep that in mind. And my parents were like, writing, like, didn't think about that at all. Especially, I think sometimes there's a, that there's an understanding that bilingual kids tend to be a little slower at learning languages. Yeah. And definitely, I was I was in a pretty low reading class. I remember my first, uh, kindergarten and first grade class, but I don't think that necessarily has to reflect the writing side of things, um, and the creativity side of things, and express and expressing myself. So yeah, so that teacher, Miss Monroe, she was the first one who told my parents about that, and since then um, kept writing, um, yeah, and writing and writing. Yeah, amazing. I, I love that. And I mean, there's a whole conversation there to be talked about, like kids who have like double languages at home or, or uh, who come from countries where English is not done in a received English style and how they're treated in school. But that's for another day. <laughs> that's another podcast. <laughs> um, so, Miss um, Monroe. Two questions here. The first one is, what do you think the influence of her, how would you call it, like sponsoring you, championing you? Something like that, like her recognizing you, her verbalizing that to you. And now, who are those people for you now in your life and how do they help? So the first question is like, what was yeah. the influence of Ms. Monroe's championing you? I think I didn't realize it at the time, but it, was uh, a really tender push towards things that could have been and, and were cultivated more. Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't like I wrote one story and she read it and was like, good job. She read it and she's like, let's take time for you to read this to the whole class and then encouraged me to write more. So I, I probably wrote like seven or eight different short stories around the pet rats we had in the class. Um, I wish I could find them now. I'm sure my mom has them somewhere. Uh, so do so I. I think we should publish them to you. <laughs> I hope you're going to have a publishing arm to your business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Adventures of PG and Snowball. It was. Oh my was God. <laughs> I've got goosebumps. I don't know why. <laughs> I kind of want, I want them to be published. Come on. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, it's so funny because these 
these rats used to get out of their cage and there was this little hole in the classroom that they would always sneak into. And mm -hmm. so I wrote stories around how, what that, the world inside that hole looked like. And one of my, the ones I remember is the fact that there's like a disco inside and they were like partying all night and dancing. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. I love this <laughs> yeah. so much. I've got so much emotion rising now. I feel odd. I don't know. What <laughs> Okay, promise me you'll do a publishing arm, or maybe I should start a publishing arm in my business and I can publish oh, what are they call PG and Snowy. Oh yeah, my God. PG and Snowball. <laughs> PG and Snowball is too good. Oh my God, and they had a disco in their little hole. Oh my God, yeah, it's, it's too good. It's, it's funny too because I'll revisit it, but. Um, I took French all throughout middle school and high school. And whenever we wrote stories in French too, I'd always bring back like me and my girls going to the disco and things like that. I always like loved writing about like dancing and things. I got in yeah. trouble for that in high school, which is silly. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that kind of nods to the fact that I still love that now and play music from, you know, every once in a while and things like that. So <laughs> it all connects wow. with each other. Oh my God, so good. And you, and you do throw a great party as well. And you've become a DJ too, right? I forgot to even put that in. You were a DJ. You've been in a band. Yep. yep. Okay, props to PG and Snowball <laughs> for putting that seed, sowing that seed out in their little hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh my God. So exciting. Okay, so um, the second question is like, how do you... So do you have some of those champions now in your life and how do they, like, what do you think is the influence? And for your kind of community you have for ladies, is this something that you would um, recommend to them? When I spoke to Angela yesterday, she said once she overheard somebody about uh, seven or eight years ago, one of her mentors, Matt, Matthew, um, saying um, that girl's going places, something like mm. that, one of her first things. And she overheard that and was like, <laughs> this is happening you know it's like these little nudges that people give you what's tell me about how that translates now who are your Ms. Monroe's now I think um yeah I could I could pinpoint a handful of people who've been influences like that in my life including you um and I think um when you see that little gold nugget in someone you really want to help uh you know turn that into something bigger and a lot of times like you know you could do something really little and you don't know if that's going to turn into anything big but if someone tells you like this is awesome like this is great like keep grinding at it then you're you're gonna work on it and then it's gonna grow into something bigger mm -hmm. um i definitely um yeah, I could say Miss Monroe was one. Obviously, my parents, my mom is a huge champion of that. Mm -hmm. um, same with my art teacher in high school. She was a big influence in my time uh, as a teenager. Uh, and then one or two teachers in, in, in college. And then uh, my manager, my boss at my first job at the publishing firm. They were all really big believers in what I did. And if I had an idea, because I'm, I'm a definitely a big idea person more than the yeah. detail oriented kind of person. Yeah. But um, they they tell me, you know, just roll with it. Try it out. If you want to do this, you know, if you want to, like you're, you're hired as a, a salary, you're hired as an employee at our company. But if you want to work as a writer on the side, keep doing that, we encourage that. And that's helped um, 
you know, grow my, my life to be what it is now and something bigger. Um, and that's a huge influence, even with uh, Haku Ladies and being the founder, because um, I see a lot of amazing members in there that I champion for um, and, and encourage and want to support and mentor in the ways I can at my age. Um, for example, um, one of the gals, she's an illustrator and she finally got the courage to do a Kickstarter to release her first graphic memoir. And um, she has told me, you know, I was a, one of the big encourage, encouragements for that because I always kept pushing her and, you know, if you want support, if you want to do a book launch event, let me know so we can work together, that sort of thing. And she she went over by like by seven times the amount she was looking for in the Kickstarter campaign. So it's just amazing to see that. Uh, and I think um, those kinds of things, um, I see a lot of senpais or mentors in my life and I really want to use those uh, hopefully to be the same sort of figure in people, in, in girls and, and people who are younger than me as well in the coming in the coming generations. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and it's worth noting, Nina, that you don't have, you don't have to be, uh, there doesn't have to be like a age seniority, although that's quite important in Japanese culture. But um, I don't know about the culture you're starting, but like there's reverse mentoring as well. So in some aspects, I would consider you to be my mentor as well. You, it's not explicit, but you know, that, that presence is, is very important. So yeah, absolutely. just to flag that as well, um, amazing mentors, great. So, that, that, so that's just something about like the importance of sponsoring and championing people and this Kickstarter. Really interested in these illustrators. Sometimes people ask me for illustrators because they're doing something. So it'd be great to have a, an introduction. Okay, so let's move on to the US years. Tell me about mm -hmm. your time in Seattle, because I know you, you kind of moved over there. You said you were reluctant at first. You've recently posted a few photographs of yourself. How was that? How was that transition? How did you become that person? Yeah, so our family moved to Portland, Oregon, and then I went to Seattle for four years for college. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Portland, I think they were really good years. Um, Sometimes I feel like I have blanks. I don't, I don't know how, how it was bit by bit, but um, I went to a private school for most of my time there. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a quite, in some sense, quite a diverse public uh, private school. Um, it was really academically oriented, um, but I'm still close with some people I know from the school, including teachers or you know, now friends, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then for high school, for the last four years, um, I switched over to the public school in my district. And I think that was a big transition going from this, um, this kind of small private school community where everyone comes from similar backgrounds to uh, this public school. Um, it's hard to explain really. I know that I've had a really 
privileged life. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents chose the neighborhood we lived in while I was growing up to, based on the public school system mm-hmm. um, that I ended up going to the last four years. So it was, it was about 96% white. Mm-hmm. And it's not a sense of minority being part Asian. My mom was definitely a minority being Japanese. And I think because I'm white passing, I, I feel like I just kind of rolled with it. I never really felt out of place. Um, my friends at school, one was British and she moved to the US when she was seven. Same as, similar as me. And then my other friend was half Thai, half American. Uh, who grew up all over the world. Um, and so, and then the other one was Canadian. <laughs> and so even in So this, you found each other. <laughs> you found each yeah, other. Yeah, so in this predominantly um, white community, most parents went to the same high school their kids were going to. All of us, like kind of immigrants, expats, whatever you want to call us, like we kind of found each other and mm-hmm. stayed really tight-knit with each other. Uh, so having them was really amazing, I think, because they understand what it feels like to have parents who aren't from the country or from that specific part of Oregon. And, um, and, and yeah, we were really tight knit. We're still really, really good friends. Um, and I never really felt out of place. I'm, I'm sure like I've had moments of like the typical like going back to elementary school, um, having my mom make a Japanese bento and asking her to make PB&J sandwiches instead and <laughs> that kind of stuff. But, um, but overall, I, 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 um, I was pretty comfortable, I think, um, as far as teenagers go in terms of how I was. Uh, and and then yes and then after high school i moved to seattle which is three and a half hour drive away uh, north of portland and there as well i went to a very small university in the middle of the gay district of seattle a catholic university in the middle of the gay district um and it was that was a really great experience too my roommate was from hawaii and she was a mixture of all different backgrounds and races as well. And uh, she and I are still good friends. Um, and I remember I, I interned at the Japanese Community Center of Washington uh, and took a class on the Asian experience of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And these are things I look back on now. At the time, I didn't think too much about it. I didn't think, mm-hmm. I didn't realize how closely, how important these experiences would become to me. Yes. Um, but uh, at the time, I just took these classes because it worked out, sounded a little interesting. I had to do the internship through this class I took. Uh, I tried to join the Japanese Student Association at school and they didn't really like welcome me because I was to Japanese. I don't, it was, it's kind of weird to say, but it was a bunch of like not Japanese people loving Japanese culture and great, but I didn't feel like I fit in as a Japanese person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Just> well, <laughs> mm. 
yeah, is, there's a lot. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. It, yeah, yeah. So it was interesting. Um, uh, but I found myself in uh, different uh, organizations that I felt really at home with. I'm interested in just revisiting that. So you said that was interesting. I mean, we, we've just had a quite high culturally, high context cultural conversation there. Where I think we both understand what we're talking about, but the people listening or watching may not. Can you just say a bit more about that coming in and being too Japanese for the Japanese fan club? <laughs> say a little bit more about that. Um, yeah. So, so you, I, I think, you think like if there's a group on campus that's for it's called Japanese Students Association. Oh, I'm gonna find fellow Japanese folks there. I'm gonna find people who are maybe like half Japanese like me. And that's the kind of mindset I went in with thinking I could speak in Japanese and connect with people who know Tokyo the way I do or something like that and I go in and it's a bunch of people talking about anime and talking about oh do you watch this YouTube channel that YouTube channel and I'm like I don't know any of those things I don't listen mm -hmm. to J-pop I don't watch anime that much I don't read manga uh, and so in terms of the the exported culture of Japan I didn't really understand uh, and so it just it made it really difficult in terms of finding common ground. It wasn't like I have Japanese roots. And there were some people who had Japanese roots, but it was very different from my experience um, as a non-Nikkei type of Japanese person in America. Nikkei meaning? Nikkei meaning um, someone who is born and raised outside of Japan, but have Japanese roots. So for mm -hmm. example, Brazil having the biggest Nikkei population outside of Japan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and there's a lot of Japanese Americans in America and a lot yeah. in the, on the West Coast. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, so I just felt kind of out of place and didn't feel like I could connect. And to be honest, I think looking back on it now, I think I really lived my years in college, like uh, for lack of a better term, like a typical white girl. <laughs> Yeah. Um, just a typical teenager, a typical yeah. high, uh, college student. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was my experience. So and, Nina, and one, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> one thing I note about you is that you, you know, when, when I've seen you speaking in, at events or seminars or on podcasts and so on, and, and also in our personal relationship is you don't tend to, dwell on any you're very optimistic now that's not to say obviously in our relationship we have a lot of conversations which are less than positive but you don't you don't kind of um you don't stay in victim status very much um you don't dwell on that stuff it seems that you've been able to kind of move between things quite quite well I wonder what you is there anything you could put your finger on or put that down to? Because I'm really fascinated by this, this thing. I, not having any children of my own, I watch people and, and wonder, like, what is it that what's the common ground for people who kind of take a lot of ownership and, and just seem to enjoy their lives more? You've mentioned privilege. That could be one thing. But then I know plenty of privileged people who wouldn't tell the story the way you t tell it either or who aren't as happy or, uh, or optimistic or can do in their lives. 
That's really, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, um, I think, yeah, partially privilege. I know that I've had a very fortunate life. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've, I'm always a big believer in whatever happens, happens for a reason, and it's supposed to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. And so, um, for example, uh, yeah, there, there were, there were a, um, a, a few moments in college that were really, really rough um, months of feeling really down, depressed and, mm -hmm. and things like that. But that seems so minuscule for me now when I look back on it, obviously it was something that was really tough at the time, but it has brought me to where I am now. Um, and so, and, and on, on, in the bigger spectrum of things that had happened in four years of college, that those few months were not as, not as uh, a memorable or a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. It's kind of, it feels sometimes like well, the way you're describing this, like from this perspective, at the time it must have felt awful, but from this perspective, it could be like, oh, that was teenage things maybe, or I don't, I don't mean to belittle it, especially if you were depressed, but I can look back on some things and just be like, oh yeah, I was just being like a youth. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, um, I can, I can say that. So in, in high school, my, my senior year, my last year of high school, I did, um, advanced placement art, which is like a college level art. And that was like, we had to do a concentration and create lots of art pieces that we would show at the end of the year. And my whole, like, we chose our concentrations, right, as I went through my first ever breakup with my first ever boyfriend. And so my whole- So intense at that age, isn't it? Oh my God. At 18. So, so, then, so then my whole concentration for the year was about, like, like anger and frustration. That was it. That was a, the, the theme of my whole thing. And actually, there's some really great pieces that came out of it. I should send you photos. Um, and it's, some of them are still hanging in my parents' house. Uh, but, uh, oh, wow. yeah, but it's, yeah, that was, you know, that was such a big deal at the time. And I can, mm -hmm. I can see why it was a big deal. And I acknowledge yeah. that. But, but compared to the things now, it seems like not so bad because that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah. Great for younger listeners to hear that as well. Not, not again, not to belittle anybody's experiences, but like as life goes on, you get more and more, and sometimes they become smaller, yeah. not smaller, but they become with perspective. They, they're putting in, into some kind of perspective. That's why I always get people to do their life story, uh, you know, the lifeline activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh. so going back to your question though, I yeah, I, I think everything just builds on itself and. Mm. Yeah, I think everything does happen for a reason. Like I studied abroad in Japan for a semester when I was in college and I hated it, hated <laughs> Tokyo, made a huge declaration on Facebook with the status being like, oh, I never, I, I realized I came to Japan. I'm never going to live here again, never living here again. And now I'm here for five years. <laughs> So, so yeah, but that experience and me not liking the experience, I think led to me when the opportunity came to come back, I said, let's give it another go and see how yeah. it could turn out. 
And then your Facebook status was like, about that other status. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> delete, delete. <laughs> Didn't exist. I never said that. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> Who said that? Um, yeah. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, so you just, the way that you stay positive and stay out of victim status is by uh, saying everything happens for a reason. That's, that's your kind of, your, your way of, of maneuvering. Yeah, also, I think if you, if you give bad experiences power, then it takes over you. But if you take the power away and you, you, you have the power to turn it around, you have the power to change the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So I think staying in that powerful stance is so important uh, mm -hmm. in terms of confidence, in terms of optimism. There are different ways to take, the, take back that power. And I think I keep that in mind a lot of times beautiful absolutely beautiful and like as a coach you know we we work inside the the bell I, I always say I work inside the bell curve I work in I work with people who aren't um terribly sick so you know so just to be very clear if somebody has a very very deep trauma that might be a different conversation which needs a different kind of uh conversation to happen around it but if we're in the in the bell curve and just kind of dealing with the normal day-to-day -day way of being a mm -hmm. human this is a brilliant approach to take. And if you do have deep, deep, deep trauma, then take getting the right therapy or, or help with that or to, to help you to overcome it, then, then this can come later. Uh, so I just want to flag that quickly. Um, as a coach, I work in, with, uh, um, in, in the bell curve. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's unethical for me to, to, to work outside those, those, those places. All right. Um, so you go to college, you study, what was it again? Strategic communications and creative writing. How was that? It was... Um, okay, well, we'll move yeah. on then. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it has led me to where I am. I think the biggest influence in college was uh, I was part of the Student Alumni Association, which was a student organization that bridged the gap between the current students and alumni. And mm -hmm. that, that in itself, I started in my, my first year of college and there was a senior, fourth year college student who just took me out to coffee and said, I see something in you and I want to help nourish that. I want to help mentor that. And so, she believed in me and appointed me as an event co-chair. And um, that led to being vice president and then president of the organization. Um, and I'm still very close with the alumni association and I'm actually starting back up with the alumni group for my university soon. And so again, yeah, having that person believe in me and um, foster that uh, potential in me. Um, I, I still look back and think being part of that organization and having that leadership experience was the most valuable part of my four years in college. So, and again, here's another Ms. Monroe coming in and saying, I see something in you. This is so important. It's really important. Okay. Um, so you graduate college. What happens next? So, uh, six months before I graduate college, um, I was in Japan uh, for New Year's and went out to lunch with 
this boss of a publishing firm who I did some freelance work for when I was studying here as a student and and yeah he just he asked what my plans were after college and I was like maybe peace for Cambodia maybe I don't know and he's like well we want you to come and work for us in Japan six months one year tops I was like six months one year tops okay I can deal with that <laughs> uh and so yeah and so i moved over to japan three months after i graduated college and five years later i'm here uh for the first four years i worked at that publishing firm and at the at, at the four-year mark i quit in order to sail onto new adventures <laughs> um so what was the kind of what was the what did you learn at that job because i mean i think for it, the guy who um hired you and you and probably maybe me as well knew that that was kind of a for now job it was not going to be your future tell me where i'm wrong absolutely no you're absolutely right and he um he is he's someone who's actually known me since i was born uh oh, he's wow. a uh, he's someone that my dad also did business with so mm -hmm. lucky to have that connection um yeah that isn't to say you know i didn't get this job because of my dad i'm really proud to say that but <laughs> but uh that those connections really help and and he's he also my boss saw something in me um and, and he knew yeah he knew that this wasn't a forever job and when i was deciding to quit like he was the one who nudged me towards that he was like you know you've been here for four years maybe it's time for you to explore something else uh which I was already thinking so it was really great that we were on the same wavelength about that and uh he he's he's a great person we still do some business together and he's very much his motto even though it's a Japanese company his motto is efficiency if you're done go home <laughs> which is very un japan like un japanese like so i've uh, really appreciated that method is of he is, he lives he lives near me right by the sea is that right yeah, and, yeah he lives yeah, in that's, that's the yeah. seaside attitude that's the seaside <laughs> attitude when you're done go home get to the yeah. sea <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah. it was um and and yeah like uh, i think some japanese companies are very strict about doing work outside of your company but mm -hmm. my company was very much like oh yeah do that oh yeah go there so they like they let me take a whole month off to go volunteer in nepal and go trekking mm -hmm. uh or like they let me really cultivate my writing side my passion for writing uh, and let me take some days off if I needed to travel somewhere else in Japan to write about it. Um, and so they're really supportive of that and understanding that this job wasn't the only path for me. Mm -hmm. So what would, what do you want to transfer from that style of leadership into your leadership going forward? I think, yeah, I think for one, efficiency. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I'm very much like work. I think when you give people the power to work at their pace or like work with a bit more freedom, people are a bit more willing to do, do things in a gung-ho way. I don't know if that makes sense, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that sort of free leadership 
I really like and um, putting trust in uh, colleagues, putting trust in um, people to, to take their own leadership and take ownership and get things done. Um, and yeah, and understanding that people aren't one-sided and people have multiple passions and multiple projects or types of work they're doing um, and acknowledging that. Yeah, I think, I think that's really important. And for people to follow their dreams, I think as a leader, I really want to be someone who can support people's dreams. Um, and, and I think as you say often, which I really admire, and I also try to say as much as possible, how can I help with that? How can we help? How can I support you in that? Mm -hmm. hmm. So when did you get the uh, itch to do Peace Boat then? Can you just explain what Peace Boat is to people? Yeah, so Peace Boat is a non-government organization uh, created in Japan. Yeah. Uh, started by college students at Waseda University in the 80s. And it was a ship that were to bring people from Japan and Korea together uh, in the midst of tension between the two countries so that uh -huh. students uh, from the two countries could learn from each other and learn about the conflicts and move towards a pe more peaceful relationship together. Uh, mm -hmm. So it started off as that and has now grown into, um, I think about four or five different um, voyages a year of over a thousand people and you travel all around the world, uh, a whole circle around the globe for mm -hmm. 106 days. There are some that mm -hmm. are short, shorter, but the typical ones are about 100, about 100 days, a little over. Um, okay. And on, a lot of cruise ships tend to have leisurely activities like casinos and theater and swimming and things like that. But on Peace Boat, there's none of that. The pool was filled like half the time. <laughs> and, um, and instead we have lectures and daily fitness classes and music classes and writing classes. And um, people, people, passengers could organize their own events. And so there was one woman who's a veteran. She's been on Peace Boat like 25 times she had a daily lecture about a different place she went to during her youth as a backpacker or a certain community she visited while on Peace Boat and things like that. So a daily lecture, someone else did daily ukulele classes. Um, people did capoeira and we had also guest lecturers that would stay on with us for a few weeks at a time who would be a specialist in something. So a Japanese journalist who's worked in South America for over three decades talking to us about the conflicts he saw and the things he reported on. We had a Northern Lights Aurora specialist who stayed with us during our bit in Iceland so he could teach us about the scientific background of auroras in the, his, in the cultural and historical context of it. Wow. And things like that. And um, yes, and so I was, was on as an interpreter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I was, yeah, I was I was on as an interpreter, and uh, as a Japanese English interpreter, there were twenty of us interpreters, and half of half of them being Chinese, Japanese, English, some being Spanish, English, Japanese, 
and then some of us being Japanese English. And so we would, we would be the ones who would either be on stage with the lecturers um, interpreting their lectures or in the background doing uh, simultaneous um, interpreting. So they would be talking up front and we would have a head mic, a headphone and yes. mic and literally talking in the other language at the same time, which yes. was in intimidating at first. <laughs> but you got used to it. I love that. I love it when I have the headphones and I can hear the person like interpreting simultaneous translation. I love it. Um, so much fun. What was surprising to you about that voyage? I think I have heard from people that the passengers that go on aren't interested in any of the educational things that they're just on for a cheap cruise. And I was so taken aback by how wrong that was. And I was so happy that I was so wrong about that because mm -hmm. what I noticed within the first week of being on the ship is like, this is like summer camp because everyone has nicknames and like name tags with their nicknames on. Um, and everyone was just so willing to learn from one another and teach one another. Uh, people would go up like every morning, like they would have like a board for the upcoming week and people would be waiting like a lottery system so they could put their event up and where they could teach or, uh, facilitate a workshop or whatnot and so people were just so into the learning environment um, I think at times it was even more stimulating than parts of college so and, and the fact that like that was in this environment where the youngest was two years old and the oldest being like 98 years old what <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that that diversity in generation and age in itself was such a fascinating environment to be in we had a, our our crews didn't have a lot of kids we had about like eight kids they have a montessori school on board as well so there were about eight kids and these kids would just be like running around at times and it's like where's their mom where's their dad but it doesn't matter because everyone knew these kids and everyone would help take care of them essentially so yeah so cool to see the kids growing up in that environment um and I love that kind of yeah. environment so much it's like I think it should the way that neighborhoods were have been I, I, I yeah maybe I like it it's good yeah 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 so it was really cool to see that because every voyage has their own theme and ours was to um to really live up to a diverse environment mm -hmm. uh be diverse and you look around and it's like 85% Japanese people. So um, that, in that sense, I was like, how is this diverse? And that's such a naive thing for me to say, right? Yeah. Such a naive and ignorant <laughs> thing for me to say. But, but it was so great to see how I started to understand the different ways diversity came out um, in terms of, yeah, age, generation, backgrounds, um, experience. There's just so many, so many different things. So it was just so cool to see everyone connecting with one another in that yes. environment. So many ways to lead a life. Um, well, that kind of, so like that influence. So let me just put this together now, because I want to kind of start to move into the final part of this, where we talk about what you're doing now. And so 
you started Her Food Ladies as a Facebook group in what, 2018? Is that right? And then that was September 2019 that you went on Peace Boat and then you came back and then it really took off or it started taking off prior to that. So I just want to try and put the pieces of the puzzle together here for the kind of recent history of all of this. So what prompted you to start up Harfu Ladies? How did that Peace Boat experience inform how you run it? And then what, what kind of, I mean, it took on a life of its own again during COVID and during all these conversations around race and anti-racism work and then and now it's gone into a whole new area and now you're going to start an llc which will include that so Mm -hmm. take me on take me on this journey (laughs) fun one um yes (laughs) (laughs) so um going back to what i was saying about growing up in the united states i never really felt too out of place it was only after college when i came back to japan um, when I was when so when I decided to come back to Japan, everyone in college was telling me, "Oh, you're so brave for moving to another country." And I was like, "What are you guys talking about? I'm going back home. Like I'm going back to where I came from, kind of thing." <laughs> and so to me, it was like, "No big deal, no big deal. I'm going back to my motherland." Was the way I saw it. And then I arrived in Japan, and for the first time besides college, like that it was different, but for the first time as an adult living on my own, um, not with my family and parents around. And I thought I was coming back to where I was born and started. And yet the society around me was treating me as a foreigner. And that really hit me that, oh, being half Japanese really to, a lot of people in a cultural context still means I'm a foreigner or I'm not that I'm not Japanese so it really hit me hard then um and it took me about two years um until I found that there was a half Japanese community a hafu community uh and and at this point during the first two years I I'm still really close friends with my international school friends from Tokyo and a lot of them are half Japanese and we would hang out and I'd be like, you know, I'm really struggling with this. And they didn't understand because they grew up in Japan and kind of became desensitized to it. And they're like, um, we just accepted the fact that they Japanese people will understand us, but we have our own community. So we're okay. But like, that was like an international school, half Japanese. Yeah. That has a culture so of its own international school as well. Doesn't yes. it? It has a kind yeah. of a very high context culture of its own um was it nishimachi that you went to okay so that's that's one of the international schools that's a little more integrated is that right i think so and it's a lot of um families that work for embassies and families that are uh i don't i don't it's it's one of the oldest international schools in right so in that way so no there's the british school there's the american school in japan nishimaki's got uh, my estimation is a slightly different flavor Mm -hmm. i don't i I just yeah anyway this is new one it's probably not interesting to anybody (laughs) besides you and me so let's move on (laughs) uh yeah so um a lot of them couldn't relate or sympathize with the struggle I was going and discovering as an adult. Mm. Uh, and so fast forward two years later, um, I thought about 
project, Hapu to Hapu project, and through Tetsuro, who's the photographer of this project around half Japanese people, I found that there's a, a whole Facebook community that exists out there for hafus, for half, half Japanese people. And, um, and so I became really involved with it. And it was just like occasional get together at pubs, hanging out, um, chatting about food on the Facebook group, things like that. But then I started to realize for one, like this big group, which has over 6,000 people in now, um, it included parents of half Japanese people, which is great. But like my dad's in there and bless his heart. I love my dad, but there's just some woman related things and whatnot that I don't want to openly discuss in a group like this with parents of half Japanese kids or men in general. Um, and so I felt like there was a need for a group for women and female identifying people who we could talk about these issues uh, more in a more of a safe space um, and find ways to educate each other, educate ourselves and celebrate um, the accomplishments we have and who we are. And so, yeah, so I started ladies after I actually invited about five um, half Japanese girls I met through different parts of Tokyo. I invited them to brunch. We all got brunch together. And I was like, so what do you guys think about having an all women's hafu group? And they're like, yeah, go for it. And I think everyone's like, yeah, of course, and didn't think too deeply into it. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm going to create it. And I did. Um, and uh, it grew and grew. And it's really interesting i think to see the difference between the hafu ladies group and the conversations that happen in our group compared to the five or six other hafu groups that exist on facebook because some of them are like we strictly only post japanese food photos and uh movie recommendations things like that and nothing wrong with that like that's that's the niche of that group yeah. things like that but I, um, I, I didn't see any other groups where people like women would come to as a place to talk about um, you know like citizenship is issues or talking about um, just like relationship, relationship issues or um, just like more depth like we have a monthly academic reading circle now and like that mm -hmm. so um, just the, the kind of like another level of conversation that we can have that I don't see in a lot of other groups. Um, so yeah, um, I, I think even our group with that understanding that I wanted to make it like an educational and like empowering group, I, at first I didn't know how to take it into that direction. Uh, it's all experimental, it's going with the flow, what worked, what didn't work. Um, and I, uh, yeah, so before I left for Peace Boat, about, so about a year into starting this group, I think there were about 300 members. 300. And, and it was, it was a bit more casual at that time. Yes. Like yeah. kind of social group. Yeah. Exactly. It was a social group. We tried to meet for like brunch or dinner once a month or every two months. It was that kind of thing. And it really kind of 
contained itself in Tokyo because that's where I was and that's that's the capacity I had to move um, and organize events but um, after Peace Boat, during Peace Boat, my friend took over and did a bit more of the organizing events and things. Um, and she did like a few language exchanges, which was really fantastic. Um, but I think once I came back from Peace Boat and uh, that's, that's when I reevaluated because um, I, I didn't want it to be just in Tokyo because our members themselves were all over the world. Yeah. And um, so I was like, how do I make sure we can do events around the world? And so I try to implement like a regional rep program to have people in different regions, different cities with the, the, the biggest groups of our members at uh, to try to do like lunch or something. And as I was trying to organize that, the pandemic hit. Um, and it was absolutely a silver lining to things. Uh, I know I I acknowledge that the pandemic has been very very difficult for some uh, a lot of people around the world. Yes, um, yeah. and that's really important to acknowledge. But um, in terms of populates as a community, it really launched us. And so, and I and I think it came at a time when people needed a group like that. People yeah. needed a safe space like that. So in that sense, I think it provided that that space um yeah. and so yeah the pandemic hit people were telling me i did a survey right before the pandemic people were saying yeah like i wish there were there were events around my area i'm sad to see all half lady group half lady events being in tokyo and i was like okay mm -hmm. okay i understand so then with the rise of zoom and online events it just turned out to be a great time to really start doing those events online and yeah we start yeah we started with a weekly yoga session mm -hmm. um to really bring it back and help people de-stress and and then someone came to me saying i want to talk have a workshop discussion around uh the way asians are portrayed during corona uh during covid19 oh, yeah. so that was our first discussion uh, and then because of the people that participated in that, someone else came said, I want to talk about, you know, the connection of race and language. And so people just started opening up and wanting to hold events. Mm -hmm. And and we were just able to do that a lot more. And that helped us grow, I think. And you're really advocating for and promoting uh, Hafu, Hafu ladies in this space as well right so you're working with them to to try and have those practitioners in there and to to create the you know uh the half a lady magic <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah so yeah that's when um i rebranded our three pillars uh to uh -huh. be um to educate embrace and empower say so more about those that are, yeah, so education, it's about educating ourselves, one another, um, and to educate people outside of our community about what half of people go through, what mixed race people go through, what women go through. Um, and, and, and that, you know, that translates into like some of the workshops I do outside of the community and things. 
Uh, yeah, so education. So say more about that. So just so mm. I, I just want to kind of deviate a little bit here. So education, you said something about the the uh, workshops and stuff that you run outside of this. So I know you've done a workshop at few, and then some. I know parents again. Um, parents of half your kids are often asking you to support them in some way. And how do you? So there's a couple of things in here, Nina. How do you decide what you're going to do? Like focus. Um, we've had conversations about this as well because there are so many people who are like, oh wow, this is amazing. We want to be part of this. So how do you kind of decide how to de dedicate and devote? And also what kind of education are you doing outside of here? Mm -hmm. Stay with this, just this pillar for now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, 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 we get a lot of people wanting to join Hapu Ladies private group as parents of half Japanese girls um, and also people who aren't half Japanese but mixed race Asian um, and some allies who have come out, you know, wanting to support us. Mm -hmm. And right now, um, I, 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 I usually friend request them and message them to say, thank you so much for the support, but we really want to keep Haku Ladies as a community just for mixed, mixed Japanese women or female identifying folks. Um, and I think that's really important. And maybe it's a little bit of yep. a selfish reason, but no, again, it's, it's like, I don't clear. want my dad in there. <laughs> Sorry, dad. <laughs> but, uh, and so, then yeah, that's oftentimes the next... if people aren't mixed race as well, they may bring their privilege into that as well and take space. What I'm starting to learn through the work that I'm doing in the background at the moment is, you know, oftentimes, let's just name it, white women will come into a space and then dominate that space. And I think it's really yeah. important to keep that, um, to, to be mindful of that as a thing and make sure that what's happening is, is, is in the right context and in the right, the right mood and the right mode. And that you are, you know, if we're talking about half of stuff, then I'm listening. I'm not telling. Yeah. 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 I think that's really important. And I think that's why a, a community for the parents of mixed race children is and mixed race Japanese children is very different from a community of the actual women living the experience. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. And so I, I do want to create communities for parents and things, and that's the next step. And I know I've said this on a few podcasts, but it's really really happening this month <laughs> but uh, I, I think there's still a lot I need to think about in terms of how I want to execute it um, and I think it's okay to take time in that um, yeah so going back to the education portion of it um, I think there is a lot since since I'm living in Japan and since the is kind of a, a problem that people really realize when they're in Japan as a hafu or raising hafu kids. Um, I do the outreach in terms of doing workshops with Japanese, predominantly Japanese communities, so that they understand what mixed race Japanese people go through and, and a lot of times the reality of 
um, how they're treated or what's considered microaggression and things like that. And I think if those kinds of outreach workshops can even influence one or two people to change the, the way they interact with hafus to be a more kind and caring and mindful way, I think that could make a, a huge impact on the people they interact with. So that's another, like that's an outside of the community education portion that I think about. Um, and also the fact that I, I still have so much educating to do for myself. And so these monthly academic reading circles that one of the members started, Aurora, she's amazing. Um, I really am grateful for that, for her, for taking leadership of that and bringing the academic um, papers for us to read and things. Um, and, and yeah, and also looking at programs. I, I took a few online classes during the pandemic um, and hopefully I can continue doing more of that academic side of things, uh, research type things. Um, yeah, um, in the coming years in school, uh, online, whichever it takes, on, whatever form it takes on. <laughs> yeah, because with the, you know, in terms of systems coaching, we say the system will reveal itself. So when you say the group tells, you know, the group suddenly decided they want this and the group started giving you this feedback, this is entirely ordinary it's uh, it, you know the the group it's you can't decide exactly what's going to happen because the group will start to deliver back what needs to be happening for them so that's educate you've also been doing some workshops at nh nhk is that right mm -hmm. yeah Amazing. so we, how's that yeah, going we, it was good we had one and we have hopes to do more um have not heard back about it yet but uh mm -hmm. it seems very optimistic um mm -hmm. but it was a great opportunity um partially my friend posted about her friend who works at nhk needing some information on what's going on with the racial tension in the united states and i immediately respond uh, messaged her saying i'm i'm not black and I can't speak on that experience, but I have spoken about um, marginalized communities in Japan from the Hafu perspective. And with the network I have, I think I can partner with someone who can speak more about this issue and together deliver something for NHK if, if your friend and the, the department's interested. And I think taking that ownership and just raising my hand um, really brought this opportunity to fruition and um, yeah and through another friend I was able to connect with Joe who's half black half Japanese and together just created this workshop that was awesome <laughs> uh, yeah for the for internal workshop for over 120 employees producers directors news anchors for NHK which is the the big biggest broadcast television so that's like the BBC or what what's the equivalent PBS. in america PBS. yeah yeah i think yeah yeah so uh, yeah it was really fantastic to see that employees at nhk were willing to learn to really show up it wasn't just them showing up they were really conversing and interacting with us in the workshop so that was really great to see um such important work nina i can't it's so important and you're right at the edge of this you know you're right on this edge it's really i'm you know, it's just great to hear that you were 
humble enough to raise your hand to that and confident enough to say, I'm going to do it. Like that kind of focus, that purpose, that dedication, that devotion, it's there. And that can propel you forward so much and help you to get over all those, those voices that say, oh, you're not good enough, you're not qualified, you haven't got masters or whatever it is that, you know, are in a critic or as I was watching um, a woman you'd probably quite enjoy called, uh, she's Beck's Life, uh, Rebecca mm -hmm. Arupi. She's amazing. And um, I think I've just said her name wrong. I feel embarrassed now. Anyway, um, <laughs> she, um, she was talking about the inner asshole, <laughs> inner asshole, sorry, the inner asshole that lives in your brain this morning on her Instagram live and her, uh, I had my corporate group this morning. I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to say a rude word. <laughs> We're talking about the inner asshole that lives in your head, but being able to get over that and then deliver this kind of value. Imagine if you'd said no, and that opportunity had just flown on by. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll admit one of the biggest mottos of this summer has been fake it till you make it. I've been yeah. saying that to myself a lot. <laughs> fake it till you make it <laughs> yeah and it's not even it's not even fake it till you make it I think it, no. it is like I'm learning as I'm doing yeah and it's yeah it, it has been a really great way to take charge and knowing in myself and believing in myself that I may have never done a workshop like this but I can take the tools from what I've done before and together and gather something to make some sort of workshop or some kind of event that will deliver to the client essentially yeah it will be of value it will elevate their awareness etc mm -hmm. etc et yeah exactly so it was a fantastic opportunity I'm, I'm so grateful that they believed in me and joe to to lead them in this and um i've been lucky some people have contacted me since then to work together and I think there, this is this is truly on the cusp of something wonderful and needed in society in Japan and hopefully something in other parts of the world as well in the future. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, embrace then. Yes. So embrace in Hakka ladies. It's it's to embrace each of our each of our own stories and, and it kind of goes hand in hand with empower as well, but you got to okay. learn to embrace before you can empower. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. I have words coming up here. Can I say my words? So it, to me, it's what I'm hearing is that it's a, it's about embracing the fullness of all the parts of your halfness. Yeah, that's that. That's what came into my head. The full embrace, the fullness. That's so. Please say more. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it, it extends outside of just being Hafu. Like I always think, like Hafu Ladies is a community where we came together because of the similarities we hold in being mixed race Japanese women or female identifying individuals but within that there's so much diversity like in June we held an LGBTQ discussion mm -hmm. so the intersectionalities of being Hafu woman and something else and how the, maybe the Hafu part of one person isn't as big of an identity as their uh, queer identity or something like that. So there's so many different ways we can embrace one another and to really help people um, be proud of those different aspects of themselves, I think, and, and celebrating those differences and similarities. I think 
yeah, just allowing people to accept themselves. And, and I think um, a lot of times women have a harder time accepting themselves. And so having a community like this where they're reminded that they are just perfect the way they are and that we're here for them through all the ups and downs, uh, I think that is so important. And yeah, so that speaks for embrace. <laughs> And now I'm crying again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it for me too. Um, when we had the language, the intersection between racial identity and language, we had this event back in April, and it was one of the first discussions we had. And that one really hit me because a lot of these mixed race Japanese women either, and sadly the, the event itself was only in English, but a lot of these women don't speak Japanese and have a lot of uh, regret, remorse around that and resentment around that. Yes. And, yeah. and so regret, this- Regret, remorse, resentment, yeah. And so this event, rem, um, had allowed us to have the discussion around it. And so many people were saying, you know, I, I didn't get to learn Japanese and it's really tough, but it's so great to learn that some people are, are learning as adults or like just accepted that that doesn't define my Japanese-ness. Um, and there were tears. Um, and seeing people happy to be able to, to, to have found this community and realizing that they're not alone in terms of being Japanese but not speaking Japanese or mm -hmm. this but not enough of that or something like that and people saying that's okay and you are you and we're in this together and we're learning about it together I thought that was such a breakthrough moment for me as the the leader of this community to see happy tears <laughs> and accepting tears I guess people were like accepting themselves in that moment oh <laughs> my god Working on it, working on it. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more you put it's, yourself out there, the more you have to embrace. It's like you have to get really big yeah. arms like that. Oh, why so far? <laughs> oh. It's true. <laughs> um, empower, or do you think you've checked that? I think empower is a bit, t tell me more. I think empower is a way to look forward yes. from embrace. Yes. Um, so if, would you say then embrace is kind of more present mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. empower is forward? Mm -hmm. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So how do you use the newfound acceptance, newfound knowledge of who you are? How are you going to literally empower? How are you going to use use this to uh, bring more confidence in yourself or to the communities around you in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so how are you going to use it for, for the betterment of the world <laughs> to make it sound cheesy? But, but no, yeah. and, and bravo. Yes, absolutely. How are you going to, yeah, yeah, do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. pay it forward and that's not cheesy either. Is it? <laughs> I think, I think um, that's, that's a great thing about doing different workshops and discussions is yeah. um, this community has become a platform for others to lead. 
So I think I've told you this before, but my goal Mm -hmm. in the future is to be able to be the supporter and leader leading from backstage, basically. Like a figurehead. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. A platform for others to lead. Love it, love it, love it. And it also comes back to, I'm like, I'm reminded of Ms. Monroe here as well. So that kind of empowering people, it's like, I was talking to Angie about this yesterday as well, which is when somebody tells me they have an idea, I believe them. I don't believe in them. I believe them. Okay. So um, that's their business to believe in them, but I can cheerlead them and tell them that I see their idea coming to fruition in the future, but the rest, you know, up to them and we can support and cheerlead and what have you. All right. So what's the future then? What's your, uh, let's, let's start to wrap up now. What's your, what's, what's the future? What's this LLC? What's the idea as much as you can feel comfortable and confident to tell me right now? So the LLC, um, is very exciting. I think I have a lot of different types of projects and, um, hats that I wear. So I wanted a way to bring it all centrally together. And so that's one of the reasons this LLC is, I'm forming this LLC. Um, and I'm really grateful that my parents are really supporting me in that and helping me with this. And as a family, like our goal is to have it, um, have it formed by my birthday, which is in three weeks. So it's like one of the goals as a 27 year old is to have this, my own company essentially. And so maybe that's like a really like surface level reason why, but no, I mean, it's not. (laughs) No, it's awesome. Why not? We have to have these kind of surface level, like, do you know what? Like visible, visual goals or something that's tangible beyond the kind of, ethereal stuff that we think about yes yeah so yeah and it will be um specializing in all different types of communication so it's not and health ladies right now will be one of the organizations under it um hopefully there are dreams of expansion just within that realm that i think i will get into in the coming years um but because of the work I do in terms of PR, writing, workshops, they all fall under communications. Um, it'll be that sort of LLC. Um, and yeah, and hopefully through, I won't, I guess, I guess I won't reveal the name of it yet. Uh, no, no. Should I, I reveal the name of it? I thought, nah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do a little segment of that another time because the, the name in itself has, holds a heavy meaning to me. Um, so I'm really excited to share that with the world and to share that with everyone. Um, I'm gonna text you later, yeah. tell me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the story behind it for sure in private. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, it'll be, yeah, it'll be a company that, um, that hopefully I can take anywhere around the world with me and, hone these uh, communication skills because I always say communication is the way to bridge the gap anywhere and um, storytelling is also a really important aspect of anyone 
you know, we're telling stories now and, and I, I, as a writer, as a communicator, want to help tell other people's stories as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So, it's an honor and a privilege. I absolutely love it. Absolutely. So Nina, where can people find you? So you can find me. Um, where can people find me? Well, if you're a half a lady and you're watching this and you're not already, um, we didn't really get into the politics of Hafu, the word Hafu, because if you're listening to this and this just seems scandalous to you, it's a reclaimed word, is that right? How, how would you describe it? There's still debate about this. I follow what you tell me. It's not my business. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there is still a lot of debate around it. Um, it did, Hafu did start as a derogatory term, especially post-World War II. Mm -hmm. And uh, so because of that, I think there is a lot of difference in the different generations you've talked to. Um, for some of the older generations, it, it holds a little bit more of a negative term. It holds mm. a negative term for parents as well. A lot of parents of happy children do not like the term. They prefer the term double, daburu. Um, and mostly though, the people who have told me I'm not allowed to use the word have been Jap like fully Japanese people who have nothing to do with the Hafu community or people who have nothing to do with Japan. <laughs> it, it's hard to say, but uh, and it's just like you, you and your friends, and whoever can believe what you want to. I'm using it, and I am that, so I, I think that's okay. Um, and yeah, and it's a term that a lot of people believe have united us uh, and brought us back together. So that's that's what I believe in, with respect okay. to the fact that people can choose to use what words they want to use to describe yeah. themselves. And frankly, that's how I take my cues. It's like, I, I don't care to be told by anybody who's not part of that community how I should or shouldn't be feeling about them. That's not exactly, yeah. Um, great. Um, so sorry, so if, you're a ha if you are a Haku lady and you're watching this, where can people find you? Yeah, so we have a public Facebook page that um, even if you're not Hafu can follow us and support us. And that's just uh, facebook.com backslash Hafu ladies. H-A-F-U ladies. Hafu. Yeah. yeah. And um, through that, we have a private Facebook group also. Mm -hmm. um, you can go through the public page or facebook.com backslash groups backslash Hapu ladies okay so that's a private group and is there anywhere that you'd like people to follow you nina on like instagram or twitter or facebook yeah. or anything like that or would you rather just keep this betsy betsy uh, which means separate um i need to actually update my website but mm -hmm. um laura i need your help <laughs> but uh, that, <laughs> my uh, assistant <laughs> yeah fantastic but yeah so once that's ready it'll be uh www.ninam as in marie cataldo.com um, so we'll link it in the show notes Mm-hmm. Yeah, there and Sam and Nina M. Cataldo on Facebook. I have a public page for my writing. Uh, mm -hmm. Or you can add me on Facebook. Just send me a message so I know who you are. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can follow my Instagram as well, which is Nina La La La. Just see my daily life and opinions and whatnot. <laughs> 
Nina la la la. <laughs> okay, <laughs> excellent. And um, is there anything you haven't said that you would have liked me to ask? Um, I think for now, this is good. I mean, we could get into it for nice, hours. Nice marketing, dear. Nice marketing. It's like, for now, there's the assumption there that I'll invite you back for part two. <laughs> I hope, I hope I, so. I've... I totally will. And, 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 you know, for anybody watching or listening now, like, I always think, right, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to do an hour this time. Every time it's an hour and a half or an hour and 40 minutes, I'm useless at not, uh, uh, not, not, not keeping the conversations going because I just love them. I love the stories. Um, I want to tell the stories. Everybody has stories. I love listening to them. There are so many different ways to lead a life. Nina's just introduced her to, us to her life and all the different ways that the people in her communities lead lives. I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you very, very much. You can find me at sarahfuria.com. You can find my Facebook page, Sarah Furia Coaching. And also I'm on Instagram as Sarah Furia. So please come over and follow, follow Nina. Nina, thank you so much. I really love this conversation and all the beautiful things I've learned about you and your ancestry and all the emotions that you inspired in me so keep going educate embrace and empower thank you thank you thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations also you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people I don't care about subscribers if I'm absolutely honest it just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not. But these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Furuya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Furuya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.